Glenda felt that the situation had suddenly got away from her, but it had been a good measure of sherry, and it whispered to her, "'Why not let a situation get away from you every once in a while, or even just once?' She had no idea what she was expecting behind the gilded door at the far end, but she had not expected smoke and flames and shouting and someone screaming in a corner. The place looked like a foundry on the day they let the clowns in. "'Come on through. Don't let this disturb you,' said Madame. "'It's always like this at showtime. Nerves, you know. Of course, everyone in this business is lowly strung, and there is always this problem to begin with with the micro-mail. It's new, you see.' According to dwarf law, it must be hallmarked on every link, and that would not only be sacrilege, but also bloody difficult to do. Behind the scenes, it appeared that Madame became a little less chocolatey and a little more earthy. "'Micro-mail,' said Juliet, as if she had been shown the gateway to riches. "'You know what it is,' said Madame. "'She talks about nothing else,' said Glenda. "'Talks and talks. "'Well, of course, it's wonderful stuff,' said Madame almost as soft as cloth, certainly better than leather. "'And it doesn't chafe,' said Juliet, "'which is always a consideration for the more traditional dwarf who will not wear cloth,' said Madame. "'Old tribal customs, how they hold us back, always pull us back. We haul ourselves out of the mine, but somehow we always drag a bit of the mine with us. If I had my way, silk would be reclassified as a metal,' "'What is your name, young lady?' "'Juliet,' said Glenda automatically, and then blushed. "'That was mumming, pure and simple. "'It was almost as bad as getting someone to spit on their handkerchief "'and wiping their face for them. "'The young lady with the drinks had followed them in "'and chose this moment to take Glenda's sherry glass "'and replace it with a full one. "'Would you mind just walking up and down a moment, Juliet?' said Madame. Glenda wanted to ask why, but since her mouth was full of sherry as an anti-embarrassment remedy, she let that one pass. Madame watched Juliet critically, one hand cupping the elbow of the other arm. "'Yes, yes, but I mean slowly, as if you were not in a hurry to get there and didn't care,' said Madame. "'Imagine you're a bird in the air, a fish in the sea. Where the world?' "'Oh, right,' said Juliet, and started again. By the time Juliet was halfway across the floor for the second time, Pepe had burst into tears. "'Where has she been? Where was she trained?' He, or conceivably she, squeaked while clapping his or her cheeks with both hands. "'You must hire her at once!' "'She's already got a good steady job at the university,' Glenda said. But the sherry said, "'Once in a while isn't over yet. Don't spoil it.' Dwarfs have a straightforward approach to alcoholic drink. Beer, mead, wine, sherry. One large size fits all. Madame, who clearly had an instinct for this kind of thing, put an arm around her shoulders. The problem with dwarf ladies, you see, is that a lot of us are a little shy about being the centre of attention. I also have to bear in mind that dwarf clothing is proving quite interesting to young humans of a certain turn of mind. Your daughter is human, Madame turned briefly to Juliet. You are human, aren't you, dear? I find it pays to check. Juliet, apparently staring rapturously into a private world, nodded enthusiastically. Oh, good, said Madame. 
And while she is exquisitely well built and moves like a dream, she is not too much taller than the average dwarf. And frankly, my dear, some of the ladies would aspire to being a little taller than they are. This may be letting the side up, but that walk, my word! Dwarfs have hips, of course, but they seldom know what to do with them. I'm sorry, have I said something wrong? The half pint of sherry so recently consumed by Glenda finally gave way under the pressure of her rage. I am not her mother. She is my friend. Madame shot her another of those looks that gave her the feeling that her brain was being taken out and examined minutely. Then would you mind if I paid your friend? There was a pause. Five dollars to model for me this afternoon. All right, said the sherry to Glenda. You wondered where I was going to take you, and here you are. Can you see the view? What are you going to do now? Twenty-five dollars, said Glenda. Pepe clapped her, or possibly his, cheeks again and screamed, "Yes, yes!" And a shop discount, said Glenda. Madame gave her a long, drawn-out stare. "Excuse me, one moment," said the dwarf. She walked over and took Pepe's arm, walking him at some speed to the corner. Glenda could not hear what was said over some nearby riveting and someone having hysterics. Madame came back smirking artificially. Pepe trailing her. I have a show starting in ten minutes, and my best model has dropped her pickaxe on her foot. We shall negotiate any future engagements. And will you please stop that jumping up and down, Pepe? Glenda blinked. I cannot believe I just did that. She thought twenty-five dollars for putting some clothes on. That's more than I earn in a month. That's just not right. And the sherry said, "What exactly is wrong here? Would you dress up in chain mail and parade in front of a lot of strangers for twenty-five dollars?" Glenda shuddered. Certainly not. She thought. Well, there you are then," said the sherry. But it will all end in tears," thought Glenda. No, you're just saying that because part of you thinks it should," said the sherry. You know there are far worse things that a girl could do for twenty-five dollars than put some clothes on, take them off for a start. But what will the neighbours say? Was the last despairing argument from Glenda. They can stick it up their jumper," said the sherry. Anyway, they won't know, will they? Dolly Sisters doesn't shop in the mall. It's far too grand. Look, we're looking at twenty-five dollars. Twenty-five dollars to do what you couldn't stop her doing now with a length of lead pipe. Just look at her face; she looks as if someone has lit a lamp inside. It was true. Oh, all right then," thought Glenda. "Good," said the sherry. "And incidentally, I'm feeling lonely." And as the tray was at Glenda's elbow again, she reached out automatically. Juliet was now surrounded by dwarfs, and by the sound of it, she was having a lightning education in how to wear clothing. But it wouldn't matter, would it? The truth of the matter was that Juliet would look good in a sack. Somehow, everything she wore fitted perfectly. Glenda, on the other hand, never found anything good in her size, and indeed, seldom found anything in her size. In theory, something should fit, but all she ever found was facts, which are so unbecoming. Well, we have a nice day for it," said the Arch Chancellor. "Looks like rain," said the lecturer in recent runes. Hopefully, I suggest two teams of five on a side," said Ridcully. "Only a friendly game, of course, just to get the hang of it." Ponder Stibbons made no comment. 
Wizards were competitive. It was a part of wizardry. Wizards have no more idea of a friendly game than cats have of a friendly mouse. The college lawns stretched out in front of them. Of course, next time we'll have proper jerseys, said Ridcully. Mrs. Whitlow already has her girls working on that. Mr. Stebbins? Yes, Arch-Chancellor? You shall be the keeper of the rules and adjudicate fairly. I will, of course, be captain of one of the teams, and you, Runes, will captain the other. As Arch-Chancellor, I suggest that I pick my team first, and then you will be at liberty to choose yours. It isn't actually supposed to work like that, Arch-Chancellor, said Ponder. You pick a team member, and then he picks a team member, until you have enough team members, or have run out of team members who aren't grossly fat or trembling with nerves. At least that's how I remember it. Ponder, in his youth, had spent far too long standing next to the fat kid. Oh, well, if that's how it's done, then I suppose we shall have to do it that way, said the Arch-Chancellor with bad grace. Stibbons, it will be your task to penalise the opposing side for any infringements they make. Don't you mean that I should penalise either side for any infringements they make, Arch-Chancellor? he said. It has to be fair. Ridcully looked at him with his mouth open, as if Ponder had mentioned a concept that was totally alien. Oh, yes, I suppose it has to be like that. A variety of wizards had turned out this afternoon from curiosity, a suspicion that being there might turn out to be a good career move, and the prospect of maybe seeing some colleagues travelling across the lawn on their noses. Oh dear, thought Ponder, as the choosing began. It was just like school again, but at school nobody wanted the fat boy. Here, of course, it had to be a case of nobody wanted the fattest boy, which, since the departure of the dean, was a matter of fine judgment. Ponder reached into his robes and pulled out a whistle, or perhaps the grandfather of all whistles, eight inches long and as thick as a generous pork sausage. "'Where did that come from, Mr. Stebbins?' said Ridcully. "'As a matter of fact, Arch-Chancellor, I found it in the study of the late Evans the Striped.' "'It's a fine whistle,' said Ridcully. It was an innocent sentence that managed to hint quite silently that such a fine whistle should not be in the hands of Ponder Stibbons when it could be in the ownership of, for example, the Arch-Chancellor of a university. Ponder spotted this because he had been expecting it. "'I shall need this to alert and control the behaviour of both teams,' he said haughtily. "'You made me the referee, Arch-Chancellor, and I'm afraid that for the duration of the game I am, as it were,' he hesitated, in charge. This university is a hierarchy. Do you understand, Stibbons? Yes, sir. And this is a game of football. I believe that the procedure is to put the football down, and when the whistle is blown, each side will attempt to hit the goal of the opposing side with the ball while trying to prevent the ball hitting their own goal. Have we all understood that? It seems pretty clear to me, said the Chair of Indefinite Studies. There was a murmur of agreement. Nevertheless, before the game, I demand a blow on the whistle. Of course, Arch-Chancellor, but then you must give it me back. I am the custodian of the game. He handed over the whistle. On Ridcully's first attempt at blowing, he dislodged a spider that had been living a blameless yet frugal life for the past twenty years and deposited him in the beard of the Professor of Natural Studies who was just passing. The second blow shook free the fossilised pea inside and filled the air with echoes of liquid brass. And then Ridcully froze, his face flushed from the neck upwards at speed. 
The sound of his next drawn breath was like the vengeance of the gods. His stomach expanded, his eyes became pinpoints, thunder rolled overhead, and he roared, "'Why haven't you boys brought your kit?' St. Elmo's fire roared along the length of the whistle. The sky darkened, and fear gripped every watching soul as time reversed, and there stood the giant, maniacally screaming, Evans the Striped, the instigator of badly forged notes from your mother, the enthusiast for long runs in the sleet, the promoter of communal showers as a cure for adolescent shyness, and the one who, if you didn't bring your proper gear, would make you play in your pants. Venerable wizards, who had faced down the most cunning of monsters through the decades, trembled in damp, adolescent fear as the scream went on and on, to be halted as sharply as it started. Ridcully fell forward onto the turf. "'I do apologise for that,' said Dr. Hicks, lowering his staff. "'A slightly evil deed, of course, but I am sure you'll agree that it was necessary in the circumstances.' The skull ring, remember? University statute? And that was a clear case of possession by artefact, if ever I saw one. The collected wizards, the cold sweat beginning to evaporate, nodded sagely. Oh, yes, it was regrettably necessary, they agreed. For his own good, they agreed. Had to be done, they agreed. And this verdict was echoed by Ridcully himself when he opened his eyes and said, What the hell was that? Er... Uh, "'The soul of Evans the Striped, I think, Arch-Chancellor,' said Ponder. "'In the whistle, was it?' Ridcully rubbed his head. "'Yes, I think so,' said Ponder. "'And who hit me?' A general shuffling and murmuring indicated that by democratic agreement this was a question that could best be answered by Dr. Hicks. "'It was acceptable treachery under college statute, sir. Wouldn't mind the whistle for the Dark Museum if nobody objects.' "'Quite so, quite so,' said Ridcully. "'Saw the problem. Sorted it out. Well done, that man.' "'Do you think I could be allowed an evil chuckle, sir?' Ridcully brushed himself down. "'No, we shall forego the whistle, Mr. Stibbons. And now, gentlemen, let the game commence.' And thus, after a certain amount of bickering, Unseen University's first football match in decades began. Instantly, from Ponder Stibbons's point of view, various problems arose. The most pressing one was that all the wizards were dressed as wizards, which was to say, alike. Ponder ordered the teams to play hats on and hats off, which caused another row, and that particular problem was exacerbated further because there were so many collisions that even the officially hatted kept losing theirs. And then the game was paused because it was declared that the statue commemorating Arch-Chancellor Scrubbs's discovery of Blit was in fact three inches narrower than the venerable statue of Arch-Chancellor Flanker discovering the third breakfast, thus giving an unfair advantage to the hatless squad. But all these problems, foreseeable and inescapable, paled into insignificance compared with the problem of the ball. It was an official ball. Ponder had made certain of that. But pointy shoes, even if they have a very long point, cannot absorb the impact of the human foot kicking what is, when all is said and screamed, a piece of wood with a thin cloth and leather wrapping. Eventually, as another wizard was helped away with a sprained ankle, even Ridcully was moved to say, "'This is damned nonsense, Stibbons. There's got to be something better than this.' "'Bigger boots!' suggested the lecturer in recent runes. 
The kind of boots you need for kicking this would slow you right down, said Ponder. Besides, the men on the urn had nothing at all on their feet. I suggest we consider this research. What do we need, Stibbons? A better ball, sir, and some attempt at running about, and a general consensus that it is not a good idea to stop to relight your pipe in the middle of play. A more sensible type of goal, because running into a stone statue is painful. Some grasp, however small, of the notion of teamwork in a gaming situation. A resolution not to run away if a member of the opposing team is rushing towards you. An understanding of the fact that you do not handle the ball in any circumstances. May I remind you that I gave up stopping play because of this, since you gentlemen, when you were excited, persisted in picking it up and, in one case, hiding it behind your back and standing on it. I would like to point out at this juncture that a sense of direction is worth cultivating vis a vis the goal that is yours and the goal that is theirs. Inviting as it may be, there is no point in kicking the ball into your own goal, and nor should you congratulate and pat on the back anyone who achieves this feat. Out of the three goals scored in our match, the number scored by players into their own goal was. He paused and looked down at his clipboard. Three. This is a commendably high level of scoring compared with football as currently played. Though once again, I must stress that issues of direction and goal ownership are of pivotal importance. A tactic which I admit looked promising was for the players to cluster thickly around their own goal, so there was no possibility of anything getting past them. I regret, however, that if both teams do this, you do not have a game so much as a tableau. A more promising tactic, which seemed to be adopted by one or two of you, was to lurk near the opponent's goal, so that if the ball came in your direction, you would be ideally placed to get it past the custodian of the goal. The fact that in some cases you and the opposing custodian leaned companionably against the goal, sharing a cigarette and watching the play upfield, showed a decent spirit and may possibly be a good starting point for some more advanced tactics. But I do not think this should be encouraged. On this general topic, I have to assume that retiring from the field of play for the call of nature or a breather is acceptable, but doing so for a snack is not. My feeling, Arch Chancellor, is that our colleagues' general desire to be never more than twenty minutes from some savouries may be satisfactorily catered for by a pause in the middle of the game. Happily, if they changed ends at that point, that would satisfy the complaints about one goal being larger than the other. Yes, this was to the chair of indefinite studies. If we change ends, said the chair. Who had put his hand up? Will that then mean that the goals that were scored into our own goal will now become goals scored against the opposing team, since that goal is now physically theirs? Ponder considered the metaphysics of answering this one and settled for, "No, of course not. I have a whole list of other notes, Arch Chancellor, and regrettably they add up to us not being very good at football." The wizards fell silent. Let's start with the ball," said Ridcully. "I've got an idea about the ball." "Yes, sir. I thought you would." "Then come and see me after dinner." Juliet had been sucked into the manic circus that was the backstage area of Shatter, and no one was paying Glenda any attention whatsoever. 
Just for now, she was a hindrance, surplus, no use to anyone, an obstruction to be worked around, an onlooker in the game. A little way away, a handsome young dwarf with a double ponytail beard was waiting patiently while a temporary rivet was put into what looked like a silver cuirass. She was surrounded by workers in much the same way as a knight is when his vassals must dress him for combat. Standing a little apart from them were two taller dwarfs, whose weaponry looked slightly more functional than beautiful. They were male. Glenda knew this simply because any female of any sapient species knows the look of a man who has nothing very much to do in an environment that, for this time, is clearly occupied by, and totally under the control of, females. It looked as though they were on guard. Propelled by the sherry, she wandered over. "'That must cost a lot of money,' she said to the nearest guard. He looked slightly embarrassed by the approach. "'You're telling me, Moonsilver, they call it, "'we're even having to walk down the catwalk with her. "'They say it's the coming thing, but I don't know. "'It won't take an edge, and it wouldn't stop a decent blade. "'You need egors to help you smelt it, too. "'They say it's worth even more than platinum. "'Looks good, though, and they say you hardly know you're wearing it. "'It's not what my grandad would have called a metal.' but they say we have to move with the times. Personally, I wouldn't even hang it on the wall, but there you go. "'Girl's armour,' said the other guard. "'What about this micromail stuff?' said Glenda. "'Ah, different pocketful of rats entirely, miss,' said the first guard. "'I hear they set up and forge it right here in the city, "'cause the best craftsmen are here. "'Just the job, eh? "'Chain mail as fine as cloth and as strong as steel.' "'It'll get cheaper, too, they say, and most of all it doesn't... "'Watch a Glendy guess who!' "'Someone tapped Glenda on the shoulder. "'She turned round and saw a vision of heavily but tastefully armoured beauty. "'It was Juliet, but Glenda only knew this because of the milky-blue eyes. "'Juliet was wearing a beard. "'Madame says I'd better wear this,' she said. "'It's not dwarf if it don't include a beard. What do you think?' "'This time the sherry got in first. "'It's actually rather attractive,' said Glenda, still in mild shock. "'It's very silvery.' "'It was a female beard, she could tell. "'It looked styled and stylish, and didn't have bits of rat in it. "'Madame says there's a place safe for you in the front row,' said Juliet. "'Oh, I couldn't sit in the front row,' Glenda began, on automatic, "'but the sherry cut in with, "'Shut up, stop thinking like your mother, will you, "'and go and sit in the damn front row.' One of the ever-present young ladies chose this exact moment to take Glenda by the hand and lead her, slightly unsteady feet, through the settling chaos, out through the door and back into Fairyland. There was indeed a seat waiting for her. Fortunately, although in the front row, it was off to one side. She would have died of shame had it been right in the middle. She clutched her handbag in both hands and risked a look along the row. It was packed. It wasn't exclusively dwarf, either. There were a number of human ladies smartly dressed, a little on the skinny side, in her opinion, almost offensively at ease, and all talking. Another sherry mystically appeared in her hand, and, as the noise stopped with rat-trap sharpness, Madame Shan came out through the curtain and began to address the crowded hall. Glenda thought, I wish I'd worn a better coat, at which point the sherry tucked her up and put her to bed. Glenda only started to think properly again some time later, when she was hit on the head by a bunch of flowers. They struck her just over the ear, and as expensive petals rained around her, she looked up at the beaming, radiant face of Juliet, 
at the very edge of the catwalk, halfway through the motions of shouting, Duck! And there were more flowers flying, and people standing and cheering, and music, and in general the feeling of being under a waterfall with no water, but inexhaustible torrents of sound and light. Out of it all, Juliet exploded, throwing herself at Glenda and flinging her arms around her neck. "'She wants me to do it again!' she panted. "'She says I could go to Quirm and Genua even. "'She says she'll pay me more if I don't work for no one else, "'and the world is an oyster. "'I never knew that.' "'But you've already got a steady job in the kitchen,' said Glenda, "'only three-quarters of her way into consciousness. "'Later, more often than she liked, "'she remembered saying those words while the applause thundered all around them. There was a gentle pressure on her shoulder, and here was one of the interchangeable young women with a tray. "'Madame sends her compliments, miss, and would like to invite you and Miss Juliet to join her in her private boudoir.' "'That's nice of her, but I think we should be getting... a boudoir, you say?' "'Oh, yes. And would you like another drink? It's a celebration, after all.' Glenda looked around at the chattering, laughing, and, above all, drinking crowd. The place felt like an oven.' "'All right, but not that sherry, thank you all the same. "'Have you got something very cold and fizzy?' "'Why, yes, miss, lots.' "'The girl produced a large bottle "'and expertly filled a tall, fluted glass with, apparently, bubbles. "'When Glenda drank it, the bubbles filled her, too. Mm, "'Quite nice,' she ventured. "'A bit like lemonade grown up.' "'That's how Madame drinks it, certainly.' Uh, "'This boudoir,' Glenda tried, following the girl rather unsteadily. "'How big is it?' "'Oh, pretty large, I think. There must be about forty people in there already.' "'Really? That's a big boudoir. Well, thank goodness,' Glenda thought. "'That at least is sorted out. They really ought to put proper explanations in these novels.' She had never been sure, given that she had no idea what sort of thing a boudoir was, what sort of thing you would find in it when you did. She found that it contained people, heat, and flowers. Not flowers in bunches, but in pillars and towering stacks— filling most of the air with clouds of sticky perfume, while the people below filled the rest of it with words tightly packed. No one could possibly hear what they were saying, Glenda told herself, but perhaps that wasn't important. Perhaps what was important was being there to be seen to say it. The crowd parted, and she saw Juliet, still in the glittering outfit, still in the beard, being there. Salamanders were flashing on and off, which meant people with iconographs, didn't it? The trashy papers were full of people glittering for the picture. She had no time for them. What made it worse was that her disapproval mattered not a fig to anyone. The people glittered anyway, and here was Juliet, glittering most of all. "'I think I could do with a little fresh air,' she mumbled. Her guide led her gently to an unobtrusive doorway. "'Restrooms through here, ma'am.' And they were— except that the long, carefully lit room was like some kind of fairy tale, all velvet and drapes. Fifteen surprised visions of Glenda stared at her from as many mirrors. It was overpowering enough to make her sit down in a very expensive bendy-legged chair that turned out to be very restful, too. When she jerked awake, she staggered out, got lost in a dark world of smelly passages choked with packing-cases, and finally blundered into a very large room indeed. It was more like a cavern. At the far end were a pair of double doors, probably ashamed to let in a grey light which did not so much illuminate as accuse. Another chaos of empty clothes racks and packing cases was scattered around the floor. 
In one place, water had dripped from the roof, and a puddle had formed on the stone, soaking some cardboard. There they are, in there with their glitter and their finery, and it's all muck and rubbish round the back, right, dear? said a voice in the dark. You look like a lady who can spot a metaphor when she stares it in the face. Something like that, muttered Glenda. Who's doing the asking? An orange light glowed and faded in the gloom. Someone was smoking a cigarette in the shadows. It's the same all over, love. If there was an award for the arse end of things, there'd be a real bloody squabble for first place. I've seen a few palaces in my time, and they're all the same. Turrets and banners in the front, maids' bedrooms and water pipes round the back. Fancy a top-up? Can't be walking around here with an empty glass, you'll stand out. The cooler air was making her feel better. She still had a glass in her hand. What is this stuff? Well, if this was any other party, it'd probably be the cheapest fizzing wine you could strain through a sock. But Madame won't stint. It's the real stuff. Champagne. What? I thought only nobby people drank that. No, just people with money, love. Sometimes it's the same thing. She looked closer and gasped. What? Are you Pepe? That's me, love. But you're not all... all... She waved her hands frantically. Off duty, love. Don't have to worry about... He waved his hands equally frantically. I've got a bottle here of our very own. Care to join me? Well, I ought to be getting back in there. Why? To fuss around her like an old hen. Leave her be, love. She's a duck who's just found water. Pepe looked taller in this gloom. Maybe it was the language and the lack of flapping. And, of course, anyone next to Madame Shan would look small. He was willowy, though, like someone made of sinews. But anything could happen to her. Pepe's grin gleamed. Yes, but probably won't. My word, she sold micro-mail for us, and no mistake. Told Madame I had a good failing. She's got a great career in front of her. No, she's got a good, steady job in the night kitchen with me, said Glenda. It might not be big money, but it'll turn up every week, on the nail, and she won't lose it if someone prettier comes along. Dolly sisters, right? Sounds like the Botany Street area, said Pepe. I'm sure of it. Not too bad, as I recall. I didn't get beaten up much down there, but at the end of the day they're all crab buckets. Glenda was taken aback. She'd expected anger or condescension, not this sharp little grin. You know a lot about our city for a dwarf from Uberwald, I must say. No, love, I know a lot about Uberwald for a boy from Lobin Clout, said Pepe smoothly. Old Cheese Alley, to be precise. Local lad, me. Wasn't always a dwarf, you know, I just joined. What, can you do that? Well, it's not like they advertised, but yeah, if you know the right people, and Madame knew the right people, ha! knew quite a lot about the right people. It wasn't hard. I've got to believe in a few things. There's a few observances, and, of course, I have to keep off the old booze. He smiled as her glance pinned the glass in his hand and went on. Too quick, love. I was going to add, when I'm working, and good job, too. It doesn't matter if you are shoring up the mine roof or riveting a bodice. Being a piss artist is bloody stupid. And the moral of all this is, you have to grab life or drop back into the crab bucket. Oh, yes, that's all very well to say, Glenda snapped, wondering what crabs had got to do with anything. But in real life, people have responsibilities. We don't have shiny jobs with lots of money, but they are real jobs doing things that people need. I'd be ashamed of myself 
selling boots at four hundred dollars a go, which only rich people can afford. What's the point of that? Well, you must admit that it makes rich people less rich, said the chocolate voice of Madame behind her. Like many large people, she could move as quietly as the balloon she resembled. That's a good start, isn't it? And it goes to wages for the miners and the smiths. It all goes around, they tell me. She sat down heavily on a packing case, glass in hand. Well, we've got most of them out now, she said, fumbling in her capacious breastplate with her spare hand and pulling out a thick wad of paper. The big names want to be in on this, and everyone wants it exclusively, and we're going to need another forge. Tomorrow I'll go and see the bank. She paused to dip into her metal bodice again. As a dwarf, I was raised in the faith that gold is the one true currency, she said, counting out some crisp notes. But I have to admit, this stuff is a lot warmer. That's fifty dollars for Juliet, twenty-five from me, and twenty-five from the champagne, which is feeling happy. Juliet said to give it to you to look after. Miss Glenda thinks we'll lead her treasure into a lifetime of worthless sin and depravity, said Pepe. Well, that's a thought, said Madame, but I can't remember when I last had some depravity. Tuesday, said Pepe. A whole box of chocolates is not depraved. Besides, you slid out the car between the layers which confused me. I did not intend to eat the bottom layer. I did not want the bottom layer. It was practically a salt. Pepe coughed. We're scaring the normal lady, love. Madame smiled. Glenda, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking we're a couple of louche evil clowns who booze away in a world of smoke and mirrors. Well, that's fairly accurate right now, but today was the end of a year's hard work, you see. And you bicker like an old married couple, Glenda thought. Her head was aching. She'd tried a rat fruit, that was the trouble, she was sure of it. In the morning, I'm going to show these orders to the manager of the Royal Bank and ask him for a lot of money. If he trusts us, can you? We need Juliet. She just sparkles. And you two are holding hands tightly. Something soft snapped inside Glenda. All right, look, she said. It's like this. Jules is going to come back home with me tonight to get her head straight. Tomorrow, well, we'll see. We can't ask for more than that, can we? said Madame, patting Glenda on the knee. You know, Juliet thinks the world of you. She said she'd need you to say yes. She was telling all the society ladies about your pies. She's been talking to society ladies, said Glenda, in astonishment, laced with trepidation, and tinted with wonder. Certainly. They all wanted a close look at the micromail, and she just chatted away, cheery as you like. I don't think anyone ever said watch her to them in their lives before. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Why be? They were rather taken by it. And apparently you can bake pickled onions into a pie so that they stay crunchy. She told them that. Oh, yes. I gathered that they all intend to get their cooks to try it out. Ha! They'll never find a way, said Glenda with satisfaction. So Jules says. We... "'Generally call her Juliet,' said Glenda. "'She told us to call her Jules,' said Madame. "'Is there a problem?' "'Well, uh, no, not really a problem,' Glenda began wretchedly. "'That's good, then,' said Madame, who clearly knew when not to notice subtleties. "'Now let's prize her away from her new friends, "'and you can see to it that she gets a good night's sleep.'
There was laughter, and the girls helping with the show streamed out into the clammy place that was the midwife to beauty. Juliet was among them, and with the loudest laugh. She broke away when she saw Glenda and gave her another hug. Oh, Glendy, isn't this great? It's like a fairy story. Yes, well, it might be, said Glenda, but they don't all have happy endings. Just you remember, you have a good job now with prospects and regular leftovers to take home. That's not to be lightly thrown away. No, it should be hurled with great force, said Pepe. I mean, what is this? Emberella? The wand has been waved. The court is cheering. A score of handsome princes are waiting to sign up for just a sniff of her slipper, and you want her to go back to work making pumpkins? He looked at their blank faces. All right, perhaps that came out a little confused, but surely you can follow the seam. This is a big chance, as big as it gets, a way out of the bucket. I think we'll go home now, said Glenda primly. Come along, Jules. See, said Pepe when they had gone, it's a crab bucket. Madame peered into a bottle to see if, against all probability, one glassful yet remained. Did you know she more or less raised the kid? Jules will do what she says. What a waste, said Pepe. Don't take the world by storm. Stay here and make pies. You think that's a life? Someone has to make pies, Madame said, with an infuriating calm reasonableness. Oh, please, not her. Let it not be her. And for leftovers, oh, no. Madame picked up another empty bottle. She knew it was empty because it was in the vicinity of Pepe at the end of a long day, but she examined it anyway because thirst springs eternal. Hmm, it might not come to that, she said. I have a feeling that Miss Glenda is just about to start thinking. There's a powerful mind behind that rather sad cloak and those awful shoes. Today might be its lucky day. Ridcully strode through the corridors of Unseen University with his robes flapping confidently behind him. He had a big stride, and Ponder had to run in a semi-crab-wise fashion to keep up with him, his clipboard clutched protectively to his chest. You know, we did agree that it wasn't to be used for purposes other than pure research, Arch-Chancellor. You actually signed the edict. Did I? I don't remember that, Stibbons. I remember it most distinctly, sir. It was just after the case of Mr. Floribunda. Which one was he? said Ridcully, still striding purposefully ahead. He was the one who felt a little peckish and asked the cabinet for a bacon sandwich to see what would happen. I thought that anything taken out of the cabinet had to be returned in 14.14 hours recurring. Yes, sir, that is the case, but the cabinet appears to have strange rules that we do not fully understand. In any case, Mr. Floribunda's defence was that he thought the 14-hour rule didn't apply to bacon sandwiches. Nor did he tell anybody, and so the students on his floor were only alerted when they heard the scream some fourteen hours later. Correct me if I'm wrong, said Ridcully, still covering the flagstones at an impressive rate, but would it not have been digested by that point? Yes, sir, but it still went back to the cabinet of its own accord, you might say. That was quite an interesting discovery. We did not know that could happen. Ridcully stopped and Ponder bumped into him. What exactly did happen to him? You wouldn't want me to draw a picture, sir. However, the good news is that he will soon be out of the wheelchair. In fact, I gather he's already walking quite well with a stick. How we discipline him is, of course, up to you, sir. The file is on your desk, as are indeed a considerable number of other documents. 
Ridcully strode off again. "'He did it to see what would happen, did he?' he said cheerfully. "'So he said, sir,' said Ponder. "'And this was against my express orders, was it?' "'Yes, absolutely, definitely, sir,' said Ponder, who knew his arch-chancellor and already had an inkling of how this one was going to end. "'And so therefore, sir, I must insist that he—' He walked into Ridcully again because the man had stopped outside a large door on which was a bright red notice saying, "'No item to be removed from this room without the express permission of the arch-chancellor.' Signed, Ponder Stibbons, P.P. Mustrum Ridcully. "'You signed this one for me?' Ridcully said. "'Yes, sir. You were busy at the time, and we had agreed on this one.' "'Yes, of course. But I don't think that you should P.P. just like that. Remember what that young lady said about the U.U.' Ponder produced a large key and opened the door. "'May I also remind you, Arch-Chancellor, that we agreed a moratorium on the use of the Cabinet of Curiosity until we had cleaned up some of the residual magic in the building?' "'We still don't seem to have got rid of the squid.' "'Did we agree, Mr. Stibbons?' said Ridcully, turning around sharply. "'Or did you agree with yourself, P.P. me, as it were?' "'Well, er, uh, I think I understood the spirit of your thinking, sir.' "'Well, this is the spirit of pure research,' said Ridcully. "'It's research into how we can hope to save our cheese board. "'Many would say there could be no greater goal. "'As for young Floribunda—' "'Yes, sir,' said Ponder wearily. "'Promote him.' Whatever level he is, move him up one. I think that'll send the wrong kind of signal, Ponder tried. On the contrary, Mr. Stibbons. It will send exactly the right message to the student body. But he disobeyed an express order, may I point out. That's right. He showed independent thinking and a certain amount of pluck, and in the course of so doing, added valuable data to our understanding of the Cabinet. But he might have destroyed the whole university, sir. Right. In which case he would have been vigorously disciplined if we'd been able to find anything left of him. But he didn't, and he was lucky, and we need lucky wizards. Promote him on the direct order of me, not P.P.'d at all. Incidentally, how loud were his screams? As a matter of fact, Arch-Chancellor, the first one was so heartfelt that it kept going long after he'd run out of breath, and apparently adopted an independent existence. Residual magic again. We've had to lock it in one of the cellars. Did he actually say what the bacon sandwich was like? Coming or leaving, sir, said Ponder. Only coming, I think, said Ridcully. I do have a vivid imagination, after all. He said it was the most delightful bacon sandwich he'd ever eaten. It was the bacon sandwich that you dream of when you hear the words bacon sandwich and never, ever quite get. With brown sauce, said Ridcully. Of course. Apparently it was the bacon sandwich to end all bacon sandwiches. It nearly did for him. But isn't that what you already know about the Cabinet? That it always delivers a perfect specimen? Actually, we know very little for certain, said Ponder. What we do know is that it will hold nothing too large to fit inside a cube measuring 14.14 inches recurring on a side, that it will cease working if, we now know, a non-organic object is not replaced in it in 14.14 hours recurring, and that none of its contents are pink, although we do not know why this should be. "'But bacon is definitely organic, Mr. Stibbons,' said Ridcully. Ponder sighed. "'Yes, sir. We don't know why that is either,' the Arch-Chancellor took pity on him. "'Perhaps it's one of those very crispy ones,' he suggested kindly. "'The kind that you can break between your fingers. I like that in a bacon sandwich.' The door swung open, and there it was, small, in the centre of a very large room. The Cabinet of Curiosity. "'Do you think this is wise?' said Ponder. "'Of course not.' said Ridcully. Now find me a football. 
On one wall was a white mask, such as one might wear to a carnival. Ponder turned towards it. Hex, please find me a ball suitable for the game of football. That mask is new, said Ridcully. I thought Hex's voice travelled in blit space. Yes, sir, it just comes out of the air, sir, but somehow, well, it feels better to have something to talk to. What shape football do you require? said Hex, his voice as smooth as clarified butter. Oval or spherical? Spherical, said Ponder. Instantly, the cabinet shook. The thing had always worried Ridcully. It looked too smug for a start. It seemed to be saying, you don't know what you are doing. You use me as a kind of lucky dip, and I bet you have never thought of how many dangerous things can fit into a fourteen-inch cube. In fact, Ridcully had thought about that, often at three in the morning, and never went into the room without a couple of subcritical spells in his pocket just in case. And then there was nuts. Well, hope for the best and prepare for the worst. That was the UU way. A drawer slid out, and went on sliding until it reached the wall, and presumably continued to slide into some other hospitable set of dimensions, because it never turned up outside the room, no matter how often you looked. Very smooth today, he observed, as another drawer rose up from under the floor and sprouted a further drawer exactly the same size as itself, which began to move purposefully towards the far wall. Yes, the lads at Brazenick have come up with a new algorithm for handling wave spaces in higher-level blit. It speeds up something like the cabinet by getting on for two thousand drinkies. Ridcully frowned. Did you just make that up? No, sir. Charlie Drinky came up with it at Brazenick. It's a shorter way of saying fifteen thousand iterations to the first negative blit, and it's a lot easier to remember. So people you know at Brazenick send you stuff, said Ridcully. Oh, yes, said Ponder. For free? Of course, sir. Said Ponder, looking surprised. The free sharing of information is central to the pursuit of natural philosophy. And so you tell them things, do you? Ponder sighed. Yes, of course. I don't think I approve of that, said Ridcully. I'm all for the free sharing of information, providing it's them sharing their information with us. Yes, sir, but I think we're rather hampered by the meaning of the word sharing. Nevertheless, Ridcully began and stopped. A sound, so quiet that they had barely noticed it, had stopped. The cabinet of curiosity had folded itself up and was once again just a piece of wooden furniture in the centre of the room. But as they looked at it, its two front doors opened, and a brown ball dropped onto the floor and bounced with a sound like gloing. Ridcully marched over and picked it up, turning it in his hands. Interesting, he said, slamming it towards the floor. It bounced up past his head, but he was quick enough to catch it on the way down. Remarkable! he said. What do you think of this, Stibbons? He flicked the ball into the air and kicked it hard across the room. It came back towards Ponder, who, to his own amazement, caught it. Seems to have a life of its own. Ponder dropped it onto the floor and tried a kick. It flew. Ponder Stibbons was the quintessential all-time holder of the 100-metre note from his auntie, which also asked for him to be excused all sporting activities on account of his athlete's ear, erratic stigmatism, a grumbling nose, and a revolving spleen. By his own admission, he would rather run ten miles, leap a five-bar gate, and climb a big hill than engage in any athletic activity. The ball sang to him. It sang glowing. A few minutes later, he and Ridcully walked back to the great hall, occasionally bouncing the ball on the flagstones. There was something about the sound of glowing that made you want to hear it again. You know, Ponder, I think you've been doing it all wrong. There are more things in heaven and disc than are dreamed of in our philosophies.
I expect so, sir. I don't have any things in my philosophies. It's all about the ball, said Ridcully, slamming it down hard on the flagstones again and catching it. Tomorrow we'll bring it here and see what happens. You gave the ball a mighty kick, Mr. Stibbons, and yet you are, by your own admission, a wet and a weed. Yes, sir, and a wuss, and I'm proud of the appellation. I'd better remind you, Arch-Chancellor, that the thing mustn't spend too long outside the cabinet. Gloing. But we could make a copy, couldn't we? said Ridcully. It's only leather stitched together, probably protecting a bladder of some sort. Bet any decent craftsman could make another one for us. What now? The lights never go off on the street of cunning artificers. By now they were back in the great hall, and Ridcully looked around until his gaze lighted on two figures pushing a trolley laden with candles. You lads, to me! he shouted. They stopped pushing the trolley and walked over to him. Mr. Stibbons here would like you to run an errand for him. It's of considerable importance. Who are you? Trevor Lightly, Gov. Not, uh, Arch-Chancellor. Ridcully's eyes narrowed. Yes, nut, he said, and thought about the spells in his pocket. The candle dribbler, yes? Well, you can make yourselves useful. Over to you, Mr. Stibbons. Ponder Stibbons held out the ball. Have you any idea what this is? Nut took it out of his hands and bounced it on the tiles a couple of times. Gloing, gloing. Yes, it appears to be a simple sphere, although technically I believe it to be, in actual fact, a truncated isohedron, made by stitching together a number of pentagons and hexagons of tough leather, and stitching means holes and holes let the air leak. Ah, there is lacing just here, you see. There must be some internal bladder, animal probably, a balloon, as it were, for lightness and elasticity, encapsulated by leather, simple and elegant. He handed the ball back to Ponder, who was open-mouthed. "'Do you know everything, Mr. Nutt?' he said, with the sarcasm of a born pedagogue. Nutt's reply was concentrated, and there was a lengthy pause before he said, "'I'm not sure about a lot of the details, sir.' Ponder heard a snigger behind him, and felt himself redden. He'd been cheeked by a dribbler, even if Nutt was the most incontinently erudite one he'd ever encountered. "'Do you know where a copy of this may be made?' said Ridcully loudly. "'I expect so,' said Nutt. "'I believe Dwarf Rubber will be our friend here.' "'There's plenty of dwarfs up at Old Cobblers who could knock one up, Gov,' said Trev. "'They're good at this sort of thing, but they'd want paying. They always want paying. "'Nothing's on credit when you're dealing with a dwarf. "'Give these young gentlemen twenty-five dollars, Mr. Stibbons, will you?' "'That's a lot of money, Arch-Chancellor.' "'Yes, well, dwarfs, while the salt of the earth don't have much of a grasp of small numbers, "'and I want this in a hurry. "'I'm sure I can trust Mr. Likely and Mr. Nutt with the money, can't I?' "'He said it jovially, but there was an edge to his voice.' Trev, at least, got the message very quickly. A wizard could trust you because of the hellish future he could unleash on you if his trust was betrayed. "'You can certainly trust us, Gov.' "'Yes, I thought I could,' said Ridcully. When they had gone, Ponder Stibbons said, "'You're entrusting them with twenty-five dollars?' "'Yes, indeed,' said Ridcully cheerfully. "'It will be interesting to see the outcome.' "'Nevertheless, sir, I have to say that it was an unwise move.' "'Thank you for your input, Mr. Stibbons, but may I gently remind you who is the gov around here?' Glenda and Juliet took a trolleybus home, another huge extravagance, but, of course, Glenda was carrying more money than she had ever seen at one go. She had stuffed the notes into her bodice, a la madame, and it seemed to generate a heat of its own. You were safe on a troll. Anyone wanting to mug a troll would have to use a building on a stick. Juliet was quiet. This puzzled Glenda. She had expected her to bubble like a fountain full of soap flakes. The silence was unnerving. 
Look, I know it was a lot of fun, Glenda said, but showing off clothes isn't like a real job, is it? No, real jobs pay a lot less, she thought. And where had that come from? Jules hadn't opened her mouth, and the troll was still covered in mountain lichen and had a single-syllable vocabulary. It came from me, she thought. This is about dreams, isn't it? She is a dream. I dare say the micromail is good stuff, but she made it sparkle. And what can I say? You help in the kitchen. You are useful and helpful, at least when you're not daydreaming. But you don't know how to keep accounts or plan a weekly menu. What would you do without me? How would you get on away from here in foreign parts where folks are so odd? I'll have to open a bank account for you, she said aloud. It'll be our little secret, all right. It'll be a nice little nest egg for you. And if Dad don't know I've got the money, he won't get it off me and piss it against the wall, said Juliet, glancing up at the solemn, impassive face of the troll. If Glenda had known how to say, pardon le troll, she would have done so. But it was true. Mr. Stollop commanded that all family earnings were pooled, with him holding the pool, which was then pooled with his friends in the bar of the turkey and vegetables, and ultimately pooled again in the reeking alley behind it. She settled for, I wouldn't put it quite like that. Gloing, gloing. The new ball was magic, that's what it was. It bounced back to Trev's waiting hand as if by its own free will. For two pins he'd risk kicking it, but he and Nut and the ball were already picking up a trail of curious street urchins, such that he would be guaranteed never to see it again. "'Are you really sure you know how it works?' he said to Nut. "'Oh, yes, Mr. Trev. It's a lot simpler than it looks, although the polyhedrons will need some work. But overall—' A hand landed on Trev's shoulder. "'Well, now, Trev likely,' said Andy. "'Andy's little pet, harder to kill than a cockroach, by all accounts. Something's going on, ain't it, Trev? And you're going to tell me what it is. Here, what's that you're holding?' "'Not today, Andy,' said Trev, backing away. You're lucky you didn't end up in the tanty, with Mr. Onedrop measuring you up for a hemp collar. Me? said Andy, innocently. I didn't do a thing. Can't blame me for what a thick old stollop does. But something's going on with the football, ain't it? Fetinari wants to muck it about. Just leave it alone, will you? said Trev. There was more than the usual gang behind Andy. The Stollop brothers had sensibly spared the streets their presence lately, but people like Andy could always find followers. Like they said... It was better to be beside Andy than in front of him, and with Andy you never knew just when he was. The cutlass was out in one movement. That was Andy. Whatever it was inside that held back the primeval rage could flick off just like that. And here came the blade with Trev's future written on it in very short words. And it stopped in midair, and Nut's voice said, I believe I could squeeze with enough pressure, Andy, to make your bones grind and flow. There are twenty-seven bones in the human hand, I truly believe that I could make every one of them useless with the slightest extra pressure. However, I would like to give you a chance to revise your current intentions. Andy's face was a mix of colours, a white that was almost blue and a rage that was almost crimson. He was trying to pull away and Nut stood calmly and was completely immovable. Get him! Andy hissed at the world in general. Could I regretfully remind you, gentlemen, that I have another hand? said Nut. He must have squeezed because Andy yelped as his hand ground against the weapon's handle. Trev knew all too well that Andy did not have friends. He had followers. They were looking at their stricken leader, and they were looking at Nut, and they could see very clearly not only that Nut had a spare hand, but what he was capable of doing with it. They did not move. Very well, said Nut. Perhaps this has been nothing more than an unfortunate misunderstanding. 
I am about to release my grip. Just enough for you to drop the cutlass, Mr. Andy, please. There was another intake of breath from Andy as the cutlass landed on the stones. Now, if you would excuse us, Mr. Trev and I are going to walk away. Take the bloody cutlass. Don't leave the cutlass on the ground, said Trev. I am sure Mr. Andy would not come after us, said Nut. Are you bloody mad, said Trev. He reached down, snatched up the cutlass and said, Let him go and let's get a move on. Very well, said Nut. He must have squeezed a little harder because now Andy slumped to his knees. Trev pulled Nut away and towed him through the permanent city crowd. That's Andy, he said, hurrying them along. You don't expect logic with Andy. You don't expect him to learn the error of his ways. Don't look for any sense when Andy's after you. Got that? Don't try talking to him as if he's a human being. Now keep up with me. Dwarf shops were doing well these days, largely because they understood the first rule of merchandising, which is this. I have got goods for sale, and the customer has got money. I should have the money, and, regrettably, that involves the customer having my goods. To this end, therefore, I will not say the one in the window is the last one we have and we can't sell it to you, because if we did, no one would know we have them for sale, or we'll probably have some more on Wednesday, or we just can't keep them on the shelves, or I'm fed up with telling people there's no demand for them. I will make a sale by any means short of physical violence, because without one, I am a waste of space. Glang Snorrison lived by this rule, but he didn't like people much, an affliction that affects many who have to deal with the general public over a long period. And the two people on the other side of his counter were making him edgy. One was small and looked harmless, but something so deep down in Glang's psyche that it was probably stuffed in his genes was making him nervous. The other in true customer was not much more than a boy and therefore likely to commit a crime any moment. Glang dealt with the situation by not understanding anything they said and uttering silly insults in his native tongue. There was hardly a risk. Only the watch learned dwarfish, and it came as a surprise when the worryingly harmless one said, in better Clamidos dwarfish than Glang himself spoke these days, Such incivility to the amiable stranger shames your beard and erases the writings of Tack, ancient merchant. What did you say to him? Trev asked as Glang spluttered out apologies. Oh, just a traditional greeting, said Nut. Could you pass me the ball, please? He took the football and bounced it on the floor. Gloing. I suspect you might know the trick of making brimstone rubber. That was my... my grandfather's name, Glang stuttered. Ah, a good omen, said Trev quickly. He caught the ball and batted it down again. Gloing. I can cut out and stitch the outer cover if you will work on the bladder, said Nut, and we will pay you fifteen dollars and allow you a license to make as many more as you wish. You'll make a fortune, said Trev encouragingly. Gloing, gloing, went the ball, and Trev added, That'd be a university license too. No one would dare mess with it. I'll come you'll know about brimstone rubber, said Glang. He had the look about him of someone who knows that he is outnumbered, which will go down fighting. Because King Reese of the Dwarfs presented a dress of brimstone rubber and leather to Lady Margolotta six months ago, and I'm pretty sure I understand the principle. Er, uh, the dark lady, she can kill people with a thought. She is my friend, said Nut calmly, and I will help you. Glenda wasn't quite sure why she tipped the troll tuppence. He was elderly and slow, but his upholstery was well kept, and he had twin umbrellas, and it was no fun for trolls to come this far, because the kid gangs would have graffitied them to the waist by the time they got out of there. She felt hidden eyes on her as she walked up to her door, and it didn't matter. All right, she said to Juliet. Have a night off, okay? 
I'll go back to work with you, said Juliet to her surprise. We need the money, and I can't tell Dad about the fifty dollars, can I? There was a small collision of expectations in Glenda's head as Juliet went on. You're right. It's a steady job, and I want to keep it, and I'm so thick I'd probably muck up the other one. I mean, it was fun and all that, but then I thought, well, you always gave me good advice, and I remembered that time you kicked Greasy Damon in the ghoulies so hard when he was messing me around. He walked bent double for a week. Besides, if I go away with them, it means leaving the street and Dad and the lads. That's really scary. And you said, be careful about fairy stories, and you're right, half the time it's goblins. And I don't know how I'd get on without you putting me right. You're as solid, you are. I can't remember you not being around. And when one of the girls sniggered about your old coat, I told her you worked very hard. Glenda thought, I used to be able to read you like a book, one with big colourful pages and not many words. And now I can't. What's happening? You're agreeing with me, and I ought to feel smug about it, but I don't. I feel bad about it, and I don't know why, and that hurts. Maybe you ought to sleep on it, she suggested. No, I'd mess it up. I know I would. Do you feel all right? Something inside Glenda was shouting at her. I'm okay, said Juliet. Oh, it was fun and that, but it's for knobby girls, not me. It's all glitter, nothing you can hold. But a pie's a pie, right? Solid. Besides, who'd look after Dad and the lads? No, no, no! Screamed Glenda's voice in her own head. Not that. I didn't want that. Oh, didn't I? Then what did I think I was doing? Passing on all that old toot. She looks to me, and I've gone and given her a good example. Why? Because I wanted to protect her. She's so vulnerable. Oh dear! I've taught her to be me, and I've even made a bad mess of that chore. All right, then you can head back with me. Will we see the banquet? Our dad's been fretting about the banquet. He reckons Lord Vetinari is going to have everybody murdered. Does he do that a lot? Yeah, but it gets hushed up. Our dad says there's going to be hundreds of people there. That would need a lot of hush. And if I don't like what I hear, there won't be enough hush in all the world. She thought. Trev mooched aimlessly around the shop while Nut and the dwarf put their heads together over the ball. For some reason, there was a faint scrabbling on the roof. It sounded like claws. Just a bird, he told himself. Even Andy wouldn't come in through the roof. There was another pressing matter. This place would have a privy, wouldn't it? There was at least a back door, and that would inevitably lead to a back alley. And, well, what is a back alley for except for sleeping tramps and the call of nature? Possibly in the same place if you were feeling cruel. Trev unbuckled his belt, faced a noisome wall, and stared upwards nonchalantly, as a man does in these circumstances. However, most men don't look up into the astonished faces of two bird-like women who were standing, no, perching on the roof. They screeched, "Ork, ork!" and flew up into the darkness. Trev scuttled quickly and damply back into the shop. This city got bloody stranger every day. After that, time flew past for Trev, and every second stank of sulphur. He'd seen Nut dribbling candles, but that was at snail's pace compared with the speed at which the leather was cut for the ball. But that wasn't creepy. That was just Nut. What was creepy was that he didn't measure anything. Eventually, Trev couldn't stand it any more and stopped leaning against the wall, pointed to one of the multi-sided little leather strips, and said, "How long is that? One and fifteen sixteenths of an inch. How can you tell without measuring? I do measure with my eyes. It is a skill. It can be learned." And that makes you worthy, yes. And who judges? I do. There we are, Mister Nutt. Still warm," said Glang, arriving from the back of the shop, holding something that looked like something taken from an animal that was now, you hoped for its own sake, dead. Of course, I could do a lot better with more time," he continued. "But if you blow down this little tube, 
Trev watched in wonder, and it occurred to him that in all his life he'd made a few candles and a lot of mess. How much was he worth? Glowing, glowing. Two balls in harmony, thought Trev, but clapped as Nut and Glang shook hands. Then, while they were still admiring their handiwork, he reached behind him and slipped a dagger off the bench and into his pocket. He wasn't a thief. Oh, fruit off stalls, but everyone knew that didn't count. And picking a toff's pocket was just a case of social redistribution. Everyone knew that, too. And maybe you found something that looked lost. Well, someone would pick it up, so why not you?'